This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. The State Highway Patrol has a message in light of all the snow. If you can avoid going out today, do so. If you absolutely have to drive, go slow, have patience. That was in a tweet. But that's not all you should have. Let's get some winter driving tips from Mark Cox. He owns the Bridgestone Winter Driving School. It's in Steamboat Springs. Thanks for being with us. My pleasure. I want to imagine that you and I just got into an elevator together. You only have the time between floors to tell me one winter driving tip. What's the one tip you give me? Look far enough ahead. It takes four to ten times longer to stop on ice and snow than it does on dry pavement. So as a driver, you have to look that much farther ahead and increase your following distance so that you're able to respond within that four to ten times longer window. Four to ten times longer? I can imagine the driver behind you getting enormously frustrated if you're leaving ten times the car lengths between you and the next car. Absolutely, and people tend to try to fill that space, but the reality is that's the margin that's required when the surface is slippery. Okay. If I have, say, a few hundred dollars, not much more than that, to invest in any kind of accessory for my car, add-ons, what would you advise? You know, for winter conditions, snow tires, or at least the best all-season tires that you can get if you don't travel in, in snowy areas that much. And having said that, you have to remember that a half worn snow tire gives you the performance of a new all-season tire, and a half-worn all-season tire gives you the performance of a summer tire. And a summer tire has no place on icy or snowy roads. None. Sometimes the best thing, safest thing to do is just stay off the road. Just stay off the roads. How important is four-wheel drive or all-wheel drive? You know, it's really handy to have, but a lot of people gain a false sense of confidence with all-wheel drive because they mash the gas pedal and the car leaps forward, because four wheels are pulling, not two, and they don't spin, so it overcomes driver error. So they instantly assume that all-wheel drive corners and stops that much better as well, and that's not the case. It doesn't matter how many wheels propel the vehicle forward when it comes to braking or cornering. Hmm. So all-wheel drive or four-wheel drive is doing very little for you when it comes to the stopping, which is ever so important. It's absolutely no different than a rear-wheel drive or a front-wheel drive. And in some cases, you could actually make the case that it's worse because an all-wheel drive vehicle is a little heavier, so it's more mass to stop. Does it help you with handling at all? It can help you in certain corrections. Um, For example, skid corrections. All-wheel drive does allow you to make, if you will, a mistake during the correction and still works. Beyond that, Really, no, it it really doesn't, other than acceleration. Is there any new technology on cars that is making winter driving safer? You know, I I wouldn't say that it's making winter driving safer. I would say that there are are a lot of electronic aids that step in when the driver makes a mistake. Okay. And really, all the technology in cars today can't overcome poor driving. Are there cars that people think are good in winter conditions and turn out not to be, and, and vice versa, cars that we would assume aren't all that stable but, but turn out to be in wintry conditions? You know, a lot of folks gain a, a false sense of confidence from all-wheel or four-wheel drive, and they think larger is better. Um, and that's not necessarily the case, particularly on snow and ice. Lighter is actually better 
and lower center of gravity is much easier to control. So, you know, a lot of folks think that, you know, a big truck, you know, is all powerful on ice and snow. And the reality is that if you get into the professional world and ice racing and all that, the lighter car is what everyone goes for, lighter hmm. and lower. Like what? You know, any, any, you know, sedan, coupe, passenger car that's lighter and lower to the ground because you're managing mass. And the more mass you have, the longer it takes to stop and the more centrifugal force acts on it within a corner. You know, I keep my eye on the outside temperature. There's a reading on my dashboard of that, seeing when it's cold enough that ice can form. Is there a temperature that you look out for as, you know, a, a threshold to say, gosh, I really have to drive dif- differently? Absolutely. Within about four degrees on either side of freezing is, is the most slippery time on the road, no question. It's interesting that rubber, as in a tire, actually sticks to ice pretty well if you can get rid of the the water between the ice and the tire. And when it's very cold, say below zero, there really is no water in the snowpack. So tires stick pretty well to very cold ice and snow. But as you get near freezing, there's a layer of water that develops, and that acts as a lubricant between the ice and the rubber, and that's when it becomes most slippery about four degrees either side of freezing as it comes up to freezing or down to freezing. So it really is important for drivers to pay attention to that thermometer in their car and be aware of changing conditions during the course of a trip. 28 to 36 degrees, then, is that, uh, is that threshold. If parents are listening whose kids are learning to drive, what's a good way to teach new drivers to drive safely in um, winter? You know, obviously, you know, we run a winter driving school, and we have a lot of kids through here all the time. And it's really neat for us because new drivers are like sponges. They're open to everything. They learn quickly. They learn the proper techniques instantly because we don't have to break through their bad habits before we can teach them the proper technique. Um, You know, the next best thing is to at least get a new driver out and you know, in a parking lot or, you know, somewhere that you have permission to use, I would say, let them realize that a sliding car doesn't mean everything is ended. It just means that you as a driver need to not panic and respond appropriately. It's something that you have to practice before you're under pressure. If you don't ever experience a situation until it's a crisis, there's no way that you can respond appropriately and correctly and timely. So training beforehand is ultimately the best way to be better at the sport of driving. And, you know, the sport of driving is a sport that is a life-and-death situation. That is Mark Cox, who owns the Bridgestone Winter Driving School in Steamboat Springs. Back in a moment with Colorado Matters from CPR News. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. If President-elect Donald Trump's campaign promises are fulfilled, the nation's and Colorado's energy and environmental policies are in for an overhaul. Look for a push to revive the coal industry, to increase drilling and exports of natural gas, and perhaps for a shift in how public lands are managed. At the Colorado legislature, Senate Republicans have created a special committee to respond to those possible changes. And just before session starts, I'm joined by its chairman, Republican Ray Scott of Grand Junction, and by a Democratic member, Senator Matt Jones of Louisville. Gentlemen, welcome to the program. Well, thanks for having me. 
Senator Scott, in your ideal world, how does Colorado's energy picture change under the Trump administration? Well, I guess, you know, it, it goes back to that old saying, we don't know what we don't know. And, and at this point, <clears throat> we haven't seen any new policies rolled out. I, I think it does tell us quite a bit uh, about some of the cabinet picks that he's come up with as to uh, what direction we're going to be going. Um, but I, I, I do look for a more vibrant um, uh, energy portfolio in Colorado. And as you said in your opening remarks, uh, yes, we will probably see more drilling activity in uh, Colorado as the, as the markets change and the policies change. Uh, interesting that you describe what you envision under the Trump administration as vibrant. Uh, there are any number of people who might point to what's going on with solar and wind and say there's a lot of vibrancy in new energy in new energy. Uh, what do you mean by vibrant? Put a finer point on that for me. Well, what I, I guess what I should have said is, is, is a statewide effort versus more of a uh, front-range-centric uh, drilling activity that's happening now. What we're seeing now is north of Denver, uh, they call it the DJ Basin, which runs kind of from Brighton all the way up towards the Greeley area to the Wyoming border, <clears throat> is uh, pretty much where most of the activity is taking place today. Uh, being oil drilling on private land. If you go west of the Continental Divide and you start getting into more public lands, uh, you see less and less and down to zero in some areas as far as any activities concerned. Oh. So, so I would, what, I'm, what I'm specifically mentioning, I guess, would be anything west of the Continental Divide at this point. And in that regard, more fossil fuel exploration, uh, I think I hear you saying. You outlined some of your ideas for this new select committee in a recent op-ed for the Denver Post, Post, uh, and one sentence in particular caught my eye. You wrote that Democrats throw working-class people under the bus when the party goes to war against warming. And you used quotation marks around warming. Why? Well, I think that's primarily because of the the global warming conversation that we always have, Uh, and, and that seems to be a fallback position for the Democratic side, is that we have a global warming issue and that that's what we need to address. Uh, what do you think is the issue that needs to be addressed uh, above climate change? Oh, wow. We have a tremendous amount of issues. Uh, you know, we could spend probably two hours on this subject today, but we can't do that. But, I mean, when you start talking about uh, where does funding come from for hundreds of programs in the state of Colorado. Uh, when you talk about job development in 44 counties that are considered distressed counties right now, uh, it, it's kind of a whole list, you know, a laundry list of areas that that we need to, uh, to, to take a look at on the issues. Let me get you on the record. Do you believe that climate change is, uh, at least in part, human-caused? In part, I would say yes. In part, all right. Uh, that is to say, you, you trust those climate scientists, the vast majority of whom say that uh, people are a real contributor to climate change. Well, I think that's just natural. I don't think we have any choice but to accept that. The second part of that would be nature itself, you know, the volcanic activity that takes place, all the, all the other things that take place around the world, uh, you know, sands. I mean, you can go into the, into the weeds, but... Uh, it's a combination of natural and human, let's put it that way. Well, let's bring in the Democratic voice on this new select committee. It's on energy and environment. 
So, Senator Jones, what's your response to what you hear from your fellow senator about the direction, uh, one, I suppose, of the Trump administration and uh, potentially of this new committee? Well, I look forward to the conversation on the committee. Um, I want to be really clear on something, though. I know we're hearing we're going to have this stuff come down from D.C. and tell us what to do. But if you look at the election results, uh, President-elect lost by 3% nationwide, or almost 3%, lost decisively in Colorado, 5%. I saw a poll of Trump voters who, a majority, say we should continue on the path that the federal government set on clean energy. And so there is no mandate, and I'm going to rely on what we've relied on since 2004 when the voters told us to increase the number of renewables in our energy supply, wind and solar. And, uh, you know, 90% of the people in Colorado say uh, they live in the West because of the clean air, clean water, and the environment. And it's, it's a Colorado way of life. And so that's, that's what I'll be listening to, what Coloradans want. I guess to the second point, um, climate change is happening. We can't ignore the strange and increasingly severe weather we have. We have a moral obligation to our children to protect them and what it means to prepare for and uh, tackle climate change. Uh, I, uh, in my previous job, a small part of it was to do wildland firefighting, and I was up on the four-mile fire. I drove by my friend's house, burnt to the ground, who was out fighting the fire, and we could not believe that 170 houses burned down that time. But in three short years, the High Park fire burnt 280, Wallow Canyon built burnt 480, uh, Black Forest burnt 550. Those are human beings trying to recover their lives. People lost their lives in those fires. Twelve of the warmest years have come in the last 15 years on our planet. And we have a real issue to address. And unfortunately, some of the oil companies have been using their big profits to rig the system and create doubt about climate change, and that humans are the major factor in that. But we have a good solution, and we've been on this path, you know, a path we can invest in clean energy, which means investing in our own communities and taking charge of our energy. Senator Scott, is is that a path you agree with? Is it one that you would change dramatically or simply complement with more fossil fuel exploration in places where it's not currently happening? Well, I think, you know, number one, uh, when we talk about mandates, uh, the problem is from, from the federal level, we do have mandates in place that are mandating what we do and what we don't do. Uh, how does that change when those mandates, if they go away or they start to diminish or however you want to look at that, how does that change what we are going to do? Uh, do I do I hear you? Do I hear you re- referring, uh, if if not by name, to the Clean Power Plan, perhaps, and to the Paris Climate Agreement? Well, that would be yeah, that would be two two examples, of course. And then, of course, we have the cafe standards on the automobile industry. We have a lot of different mandates that are being forced out into the uh, to the states from the federal government. If, for an example, those mandates are rolled back or uh, cut back, if you will, however you want to look at it. How does that change what we can do in the state of Colorado or any other state for that matter, regardless of what uh, we may believe uh, industry will respond to that, whether it be any any of the industries will respond in some fashion or form. If, in fact, they don't have a mandate, that means that they may not be able to afford to do the things they want to do. So what impact is that going to have? Those are the kind of things we're going to have to flush out in this committee. It's kind of separate fact from fiction as far as what's going on. 
Um, do you hope that the administration um, puts the clean power plan in the wastebasket? Uh, yes, I do. I absolutely do. I you think do. It's, it's time that we take a new look at this. Um, and, and one real specific reason for that is that you know, we, we are trying to mandate to the world, basically, as to, you know, when you talk about the Paris Accord, for an example, uh, we can't do that. We can't mandate to the rest of the world what they're going to do. Yes, they can sign something at a, at a, at a wonderful roundtable with a cocktail, but does that mean they're really going to do anything? We can only control what we can control, which is where we are today. China has signed the Climate Paris deal, for instance. That's a, a major nation and one that uh, is wrestling as well with climate change. Um, would, would you want the United States to stay a signatory to the climate deal? You know, I, again, I, I don't know that those, those deals per se really have that much of an impact. When you look at the Chinese uh, energy consumption usage or what they use for energy, it's, it's very clear the majority of that is coal. Are they going to change because they signed an agreement? Because most of the coal that they bring in, they actually use for manufacturing steel. Are they really going to change that? They're opening a coal-powered power plant every nine days in China. Is that going to, are they going to change and stop doing that? Do they have the natural resources to go to more natural gas? Do they have the ability to go to more uh, renewable standards? You know, I, those are all questions that, that I don't remember seeing in the accord, but, you know, maybe it was there. I don't know. But I think time and time again, we've seen these world agreements come forth, and then they just, you know, whoever wants to, to uh, be involved stays involved. Whoever doesn't, they do what they want. Senator Matt Jones and Democrat on this new Energy and Environment Select Committee. Uh, what do you think of what you hear there? What would pulling out of the Clean Power Plan, in your mind, mean for Colorado? Well, I think it's it's the wrong way to go. I think the nation should move ahead. But like I said earlier, Coloradans want us to clean up our energy supply, and they want us to do it aggressively. And now that wind and solar, the large-scale solar plants, are cheaper they're going to want it even more. I mean, when Excel went out to buy the cheapest energy they could buy in the last couple of years, they bought wind and solar. When Tri-State went out and bought the cheapest energy they could buy, they, they supply the rural electric uh, utilities in the Colorado REAs. Uh, they bought wind and large-scale solar because it's cheaper. So we're going to have that going on. And, you know, the Chinese have the most wind of any nation on the world uh, in the world. And... Uh, that's the kind of competition we have, and we can make a really uh, productive life for people in Colorado through this by, you know, putting wind turbines on farms so that they have a income, a steady income, solar on people's roofs, so they have the choice to do that, or have our schools use less energy and save the money and put it into classrooms. We should be making the most of this opportunity and not going backwards. Senator Scott, on that specific point of a renewable energy standard in Colorado, so voters uh-huh. passed the first one, and the legislature has, uh, in ensuing years, upped that renewable energy standard. That is how much energy on the grid has to come from renewables. Uh, would you roll back any of that? Do you think that it should stay where it is? Should it move forward? Well, you know, let's, let's be really clear about this. When we talk about uh, Tri-State, or we talk about Excel, or we talk about all these other these companies that are doing what they're doing, number one, yes, there are mandates in place to make them do that. And number two, 
the consumers are paying for it. It's not XL. So if you look at your energy bill every month and you see a little line on line amount that says renewables, you're paying for this. So when the, your neighbor puts solar panels on his roof, in part, that money is coming from, I can't remember the exact number, but there's a, like almost 2 million XL customers in Colorado just by themselves. Uh, the, the rate payers pay for what the, the power generation is. It's not anybody, nobody's doing any of this out of the goodness of their heart. Let's put it that way. Yeah. But fundamentally, do you believe that Colorado is headed in the right direction as it increases, as it has over the years, its renewable energy standard? You know, I think what we're doing is we're, we're, you know, we're focusing on one section of, the, of, of energy. Uh, right now, 70% of all the emissions in Denver come from automobiles. They don't come from power plants. And that's where the big problem is, is, is not with how are we producing power, it's how do we produce transportation between point A and point B. Mm-hmm. I know my colleague, by the way, good morning, Matt. I didn't get a chance to say You know, is, is my, my colleague, Matt, is, is very much into the, uh, the mass transit and all the things that the Denver, Boulder, you know, the front range really needs versus where I come from, which is a very rural area. In Grand Junction. Whole different kind of, yeah, yeah, mass transit is not an issue over there. Uh, but that's that's kind of the whole point. Is we have to sit there and we have to look back at this whole picture and say, okay, where, where are we going? I mean, we've got this huge increase in population that's hit, and I believe that they're all on I-25 when I come over here. Um, is that, that's going to that's going to continue. So if we're going to look at a, a, a full energy portfolio, let's let's just let's just use the argument that the renewables is the best best thing we can possibly do today. What are we going to do in the future? What do we do from this point into 2020, 2030, 2040? We need to start having those conversations because our infrastructure, whether it's wind, solar, power plants, whatever it may be, they are wearing out. We have to start looking at, okay, what's the future look like? You know, is it, is it more coal generation? I don't know. Is it more natural gas generation? We, we have to have that conversation and flush those things out so that the people in Colorado understand that we have a massively growing power grid, uh, BTU grid, if you will, for heating and cooling of homes, transportation grid issues. Uh, and if most of that pollution, if you want to just call it pollution, is coming from automobiles, you know, what are we doing about those things? You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're speaking with two members of a new state Senate select committee. It's on energy and environment. It connects very much with uh, the changes likely coming down the pike under the Trump administration on the issue. Uh, it's GOP chair Ray Scott is with us. He's from Grand Junction. And we're also speaking with a Democratic member, Matt Jones. And... Uh, Senator Jones, briefly, we heard Senator Scott mention coal there, and certainly uh, Mr. Trump has talked a lot about bringing coal jobs back. Uh, There are questions about whether that's possible, given the market forces that may make coal not competitive. But um, what what role do you think this committee might play in considering coal and in considering the workers displaced if it continues to decline? Well, certainly coal's part of our uh, energy now. And uh, people who lose their job through that dislocation, we need to find programs to help them uh, transition. But I also think we need to have a, a uh, 
recognize what's going on with the clean energy as far as jobs, too. I mean, there's a farmer, I have a quote here, the wind farms fill up the coffers of these small counties. This is a farmer on the eastern plains. They're always struggling financially. They provide a stable source of income for landowners, income that's not susceptible to the vagaries of the worldwide commodities market. Uh, that's uh, a farmer, but he's also former state senator Greg Brophy, a Republican. Uh, they are doing better in the eastern plains because of wind. There are 220 more small businesses because of that. Uh, the school district of Pete's, north of Sterling, has 15% more money in their budget so kids can get an education. They're really a cash-strapped district. So we need to recognize all parts of this. We need to help anybody that's dislocated, but we also need to realize how many jobs this creates on the uh, plains. It's 4,250 so far. Uh, I will say, though, I believe coal is the majority of power generation in the state, and there are challenges to scaling up renewables. Isn't that true, Senator Jones? Yes, absolutely. It's about 55% of the XL um, load is coal right now. And uh, you need to scale up the renewables. But now that they're cheaper, uh, you can do that. They're cheaper and cleaner, uh, cheaper and cleaner. That's, people need to start realizing that. And on your XL bill, uh, uh, Ray mentioned that you can find your renewable in there. What you do not find in there is a pass-through cost for when coal goes up straight to you and me, the consumer for gas or coal, and if that were obvious, people would realize it. Now, you will not get a pass-through cost from solar or wind. It's The energy's free, and so you are very much more stable that way as far as variability and, and knowing what you have. And so there are real opportunities for us. Uh, we need to address climate, and we need to help people out uh, with the economy around clean energy and energy efficiency. Uh, you've got uh, a Republican soon to be in the White House, Republican control of this House and Senate there in Washington. Or is, your optimist, is your outlook a little too optimistic? We have about uh, 40 seconds left here. Uh, I think that I understand that, but in the State House, the Democrats still control the House. It's a one-vote difference in the Senate. I think we need to figure out what Coloradans want, and they have told us at the polls uh, and in polling, that they want us to clean up our energy supply. And now that it's cheaper, uh, we should absolutely do that to create uh, opportunities for people. Very quickly, Ray Scott of Grand Junction, will this will this committee uh, vote on bills, or do you see it as, as sort of, I don't know, not, not quite symbolic, but um, more philosophical? Well, I want to clarify one thing that Matt just said is, sure. you know, there's nothing there's nothing free in this world. You know, I mean, you could, a lot of people like to use that term when it comes to solar and, and wind. It's not free. There's nothing free out there. And secondly, Ryan, if I told you today that the government was going to mandate that you can no longer be a broadcaster, you now need to be a coal miner, I don't know that you're going to like that very well. So I, I, I think social engineering from that level is just not a good, healthy thing. Coal miners want to, they want to dig coal. They don't want, they don't want to be a computer operator. That's the livelihood that it's been in their family for generations. So I, I, I don't. I, I take exception to that idea that that somebody would just be more than willing to go get a new job. <clears throat> um, you know, and another another thing I wanted to point out. Yeah, we, we're, you know, we, I'm so sorry. We we really have to wrap up, uh, Senator sure, Scott. So sure, just absolutely. briefly, will, will the committee vote on bills, or is it something where discussion happens and then votes happen in other committees? 
the committee itself is going to be is laid out more as an education committee. Okay. Uh, we can develop a bill, yes, but it has to go back to the committee of reference, which will be the Ag and Natural Resource Committee. Got it. Well, so I th- we can come up with ideas. <clears throat> I think you were right when you said we could probably talk about this for two hours. Gentlemen, thanks so much for being with us. So you, you heard Absolutely. from Ray Scott. He's a Republican state senator from Grand Junction, and he will chair this new Senate Select Committee on Energy and the Environment. And Matt Jones, he's a Democrat from Louisville, and he'll serve on the committee. Coming up, tales from a ski patroller. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. In his 40 years as a ski patroller, John Conkey has rescued horses, deer that are injured, and, of course, wayward skiers. And it's the latter we're going to focus on now. At Steamboat, where Conkey is ski patrol director, there's a new policy. Skiers may have to pay $500 if they're to be rescued out of bounds. And uh, John, welcome to the program. Good morning, Ryan. How are you? I'm good. Why is Steamboat uh, doing this? Well, you know, our, our primary focus with uh, with even uh, talking about the out of area search rescues is is to get people to kind of understand that when they go to a ski area, you know, uh, the lift ticket that they buy at, at Steamboat, you know, provides for all the the services that you get inside the ski area boundary. And with all the uh, public attention of people, you know, wanting to kind of push the boundaries, literally, um, they'll kind of have a tendency to kind of push that boundary before they, they have the educational background to, to really, you know, exceed that and go out into the backcountry. So um, anyway, it's, as, as uh, we, we've gotten probably uh, over 20 inches of snow in the last 24 hours, for example. And as people, you know, ski the snow within the area, uh, they have a tendency to kind of watch more experienced people kind of venture into the backcountry. Mm. And it's more of a, a, a kind of an issue to get people to understand what, what it's going to take to kind of ski in that back, back area. Um, I guess what I hear you saying is that people might assume that their, you know, rather expensive lift tickets entitles them to a free rescue if they're out of bounds. You're saying that's not the case at Steamboat. But this is this is not a ticket or a fine. You're careful not to put it in in sort of punishing terms. You're calling it a service fee. And I understand that's because it's it's not by any means illegal to go out of bounds. That's that's public land and, and people presumably have a right to be there. Is that correct? That is absolutely correct. And uh, so it's really more of a just kind of an awareness issue to uh, um, to kind of understand, you know, they're putting their own lives at risk as well as rescuers. And, and uh, you know, it's a push to kind of get at the education you need to kind of venture out there. Have you levied the $500 fine or service fee on anyone yet? No, we have, have not. We've been very fortunate. And uh, however, as the snow piles up, you know, we are kind of looking at uh, the backcountry. And right now, I think currently we're under a, a, a pretty severe avalanche watch with all the snow that the high country is getting. Mm. And um, so anyway, knock on wood, as, as of uh, so far this winter, we have not had to levy any fine, any, any I'm sorry, any fees or bills for service. Uh, you were careful to avoid the word fine, I think, there. Yeah, yep. yeah you know, it's been <laughs> thrown around so much lately that it's, it's hard to kind of say, it's not a fine. It's really a fee for service. A fee for service. How would it be charged? Like, would you you would do it after the fact, obviously, but at what point? Yeah, yeah at, at that point, we'd assess, you know, each kind of uh, individual case. However, we would uh, more than likely just send out a bill just like you would for your dry cleaning or for uh, any other, you know, kind of a service that's rendered, your hotel bill or uh, anything like that. I'd like to do a bit of an anatomy of a rescue with you. You've done many of them. Sure. 
How do you sure. find how do you find out that someone's gone out of bounds in the first place and is stranded? How do they yeah. contact the authorities? And yeah, yeah, help me understand that. Yeah, so you know, the, probably the biggest uh, advance in the search and rescue world has been cell phones, oh. and. Uh, Are you there? And I think every major carrier has one, is that, you know, 99% of the time, if somebody is in need of help, they end up calling uh, the 911 number. And so um, they have the capacity, you know, with the, the government has the capacity to kind of ping that cell phone coverage. And they can tell us within, oh, you know, 20 to 25 feet exactly where uh, where that individual is. And then we can then we work closely with the, the local search and rescue, which is under the auspices of the local sheriff. And then we kind of go on to Google Maps or mapping programs and we can tell with great accuracy exactly where they are. Got it. You cut out a little bit there, but basically the cell phones have information that they're relaying about location and uh, working with authorities, you're able to pinpoint where someone is and then rescue them. You know, I I, I want you to tell us the story of a rescue mission from, I think it was two seasons ago, uh, that was rather harrowing. Will you tell us what happened? Yeah, no, I'd be happy to. Is is uh, I think it was two seasons ago. We got a phone call from um, I believe up to like ten or eleven people. They are all stuck on exactly the same little rocky precipice, and um, so by the time we figured out where they were and took uh, a whole bunch of rescuers, the other thing that people need to understand is if you know four or five people or. Uh, you know, go out uh, to look for people, we always will keep four or five or even more people as backup. You know, that's kind of how rescue operations work. Mm. So uh, as they got down there, you know, they found all the people on a cliff. It started to get dark. And, uh, you know, in the aftermath of that, what was happened is a young couple from, uh, you know, not from Colorado, saw other people's ski tracks and followed them. And then the rest of the a giant group saw the, two, the other two go and assumed they... Maybe we lost you officially this time, or are you still with us, John, from Steamboat Springs? I think we've lost him. But the moral Hello? of... Oh, hi, hi, hi. Uh, the moral of the story you're telling us is uh, that you get followers. You get people who, who go out of bounds, and then right. you get people who see them go out of bounds and think, oh, I want to go over there. That looks cool, but who may lack the ability to ski in that area. That's exactly right. Mm-hmm. Uh, so how do you think you'll decide whether to levy the service fee? Well, um, that, you know, that uh, usually what we'll take into consideration is just kind of how, how unprepared or, you know, how, how uh, you know, what their level of education was. There, there won't be uh, what the circumstances were. A lot of times people will venture out not very far away and call us immediately during the day um, that we would more likely be able to go out and get them back in. Um, as opposed to something that might go on all night or even all the next day. And, and, and that's kind of the, the reality is, is that, that uh, I think in that article we talked about that we had so many patrollers out all night that, that next, the next day we felt our services were kind of uh, uh, somewhat challenged or uh, you know, stressed the next day because people were, all the patrollers were so tired. Right, from right. Ramping around. And as you say, are risking their own lives as well. Uh, just before we go, where will uh, the money go if you collect five hundred dollars? Will that benefit Steamboat? What? 
Yeah, you know, that's something that, uh, like I said, we have yet to impose any fines. Yeah. But, we're, you know, we're, that's kind of under review, and we'll kind of take that. Uh, one of our thoughts or ideas was to just take that money and donate it to educational causes for backcountry, you know, backcountry education. John, thanks for being with us. Uh, you bet. And, you know, for people that need more information, uh, you know, steamboat.com, tons of weather information and, and other information about the ski area. But thanks for uh, having us on. Yeah, and it sounds like you've gotten some great snow there. So that's John Conkey. He's Ski Patrol Director at Steamboat Springs. The resort has implemented a possible $500 service fee for rescuing skiers from its backcountry. Still to come, what NASA wants with Colorado snow. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. NASA has a new mission to western Colorado. The space agency is studying snow in two places that get a lot of it, the Grand Mesa and Senator Beck Basin at Red Mountain Pass. NASA scientist Edward Kim is on the line, and so is Jeff Derry, who's an expert on snow in the San Juan Mountains. And, uh, gentlemen, thanks for being with us. Thank you. Uh, Edward, we think of NASA as an agency focused on the heavens. So why is it doing this study that you call SnowX on the ground? Well, NASA has a significant Earth science component uh, in addition to studying uh, the planets and the galaxies and the rest of the universe. And NASA's Earth science enterprise is trying to provide the most accurate information, in this case on snow, to decision makers so they can make the most informed decisions. What is it that is still to be determined about snow? What is it that we don't know about it? Well, surprisingly, quite a bit. Uh, it's Snow is a challenging to measure from space. Uh, and there have been some uh, measurements to date. However, what we found is that uh, a certain type of sensor may work for certain kinds of snow in certain places and certain times, but uh, no single sensor really is able to observe snow well and accurately over a wide variety of types of snow in different conditions, and especially when you throw in complicating factors. So we really need a multi-sensor approach, and we need to, and NASA needs to figure out what that optimum combination of sensing techniques looks like. Hmm. So the SnowX experiment this first year in particular is designed to help us figure out what an optimum combination would look like and therefore what a future snow satellite might look like. An optimum combination of sensors. You say that there can be complicating factors that get in the way of, of reading snow, essentially. What are complicating factors on the ground? Absolutely. There are two uh, two main ones for snow. The first would be complex terrain. In other words, anything that in, you know, anywhere where you have mountains, anywhere where it's not flat. And the other big one is trees. Um, huh. About half the land area of, of the earth has trees in it. And the largest biome on earth, the boreal forest, is all trees and is all snow covered in the winter. And so I am guessing, uh, Jeff Derry, that the reason... NASA chose Grand Mesa and Senator Beck Basin is because it's got all the right variables to crack this nut? Correct. Uh, Grand Mesa has its own uniqueness. It's relatively flat. It has a lot of trees. But then Senator Beck Basin, our basin, has a lot, has its own 
set of challenges to offer. Um, we're pretty, um, we do have complex terrain. Uh, the lower part of our basin is forested, um, and then it, going up, it goes above tree line to an alpine environment. And then further up from there, it's jaggedy mountain peaks. So we have about a 2,500 foot elevation difference in our study basin. Jeff, you've been studying snow for a really long time. What are some of the questions you have about snow that you hope Snow X will answer? Well, pretty much nailing down the better nailing down the spatial distribution of snow and to see a snow sensing satellite be developed that can measure the snow water equivalent from space would just be would just be mind blowing. Um measuring from space would, would really um be a leap forward. You talk about the snow water equivalent. We have to remember that snow is a very important reservoir of water. That is correct. Snow is um, extremely important, um, and that's a great way to look at it. Snow is a natural reservoir. Um, it stays frozen during the winter until melting occurs in spring or summertime. Releasing the water is needed for agriculture um, environment and to fill reservoirs. In the western United States, about 80% of the total annual discharge in most streams originates from snowmelt. So snow is incredibly important in the western United States especially. And for Colorado, being the headwater states, this is where it all starts. This is the, this is the first step. Um, it just goes downhill from here. <laughs> we need to know what the snowpack is doing, you know, the, again, this natural reservoir, so we know what the streams and the rivers are going to do come springtime. So we can manage the water in an efficient manner and have an idea what to expect and how to allocate for downstream users. I mean, just the Colorado River alone um, is shared among, excuse me, seven states in the country of Mexico. A lot of people are interested in our snowpack. And I guess, uh, Edward Kim, this becomes even more important in the face of climate change. That is, understanding how the snowpack might be affected and getting a really good sense of, of what's happening to that water supply. Yes, I would say I would remind folks that climate is something that happens over decades and snow X, you know, being all of three weeks in duration is not, you know, can't really say much. You can't really say much about climate with just three weeks of of observations. But um, certainly, you know, people may be able to take the data that's collected over over decades and attempt to um, to answer some climate questions. Yeah. So I, I would I would think though that, you know, as Jeff was pointing out, that snow is important to society in many ways and, and each of those has a global impact. The water resources aspect uh, is definitely one of those. And I, I should add that Snow X, though concentrated you say in three weeks, is a is a broader study, right? Of I think of five years or something. That's correct. It's this is the first year of we hope five years and we do not know where the uh, where the sites will be located for the future years. So right now we're just focused on what's happening next month, as you can imagine. In western Colorado. And uh, tell us more about what will happen, the, the sort of logistics of it. I know that you'll be flying aircraft in, in this area. Absolutely. It's very exciting. We haven't, uh, the snow community in NASA hasn't done a snow campaign like this since 2003. And we have, uh, as of right now, we have five aircraft confirmed. We've got a P-3 aircraft from the Navy, uh, a King Air. uh, So that P-3 will be based out of Colorado Springs. 
the King Air will be based out of Grand Junction. We have two uh, Gulfstream 3s, NASA aircraft, and they'll be based out of California and Texas. And then we have a Twin Otter based out of uh, uh, Grand Junction itself. And altogether, we have about a dozen different types of sensors on these aircraft. Is it going to sound like a busy airport in that part of Colorado during these three weeks? Probably not. Uh, the P-3 will be doing some low-altitude flying over the Mesa, about 1,000 feet off the ground. So folks that are up on the Mesa will certainly uh, hear that once in a while. Um, but uh, the other aircraft are probably going to be high enough up that uh, unless you really know to look for them or, or listen for them, you probably wouldn't notice or wouldn't realize they're there. I, I would mention that in addition to the aircraft, a really critical part of this uh, snow axe experiment is what we call ground truth, and that's people on the ground manually measuring what the true conditions of the snow are so we can compare those to what the remote sensing instruments see and know what the correct answer is supposed to be. So we have planned almost 100 people over the course of the three weeks that will be uh, up on the Mesa, and also a portion of them will be going down to the Senator Beck Basin. I love the phrase ground truth. Interesting. And so, Jeff Derry, will you be part of the air stuff or the ground truth? I'll be part of the ground truthing. That's what I do. (laughs) Yeah. So uh, the eventual goal here is to develop a smart satellite that will be able to tell us more about snow. That's just something that's missing right now, Edward Kim? That's correct. Uh, NASA has satellites that measure other parts of the water cycle, other parts of, of the, the natural system. But we, uh, NASA is currently, there is no dedicated snow sensor hmm. up in space. So that's a, uh, a gap that we'd like to, to fill. Is it possible that NASA's work on the ground will benefit it in space in some regard? Like, could, the, could this sort of go the other way? Oh, most definitely. Uh, The entire purpose for doing this campaign is, of course, to figure out what combination of sensors works, uh, you know, quantify exactly how well different combinations work under different uh, challenging conditions. But then typically, even after a satellite is launched, there will be uh, field campaigns uh, and ground truth taken to check to make sure that the satellite and and your uh, algorithms are working properly. So uh, basically serving as a control, a scientific control. And what date exactly does this get underway? Uh, The campaign on the ground and in the air will start on uh, February 6th. It'll be the 6th through the 24th. The 6th through the 24th. Well, gentlemen, thank you so much for being with us. We really appreciate it. So you heard there Edward Kim. He's NASA scientist directing a study of snow on Colorado's western slope. And Jeff Derry, director of the Snow Study Institute based in Silverton. And the two will be working together on Snow X. Finally today, Denver's Face Man has a reputation for a wild live show. Westward awarded the band Best Stage Art for its stage with a giant constructed shark mouth, complete with razor-sharp chompers and lifelike gray skin. The rock trio also organizes many festivals, like the recent 100-year storm at Denver's Oriental Theater. It brought together 100 Colorado acts to perform over two days. Following the release of their latest album, Wild and Hunting, the band returned to the CPR Performance Studio for a set that included this song, Father Time. Just like that kid that still laughs within me 
I wanna be happy without reason. 